The views and opinions expressed on Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC 88.1 or NC State student media. Your dial is currently turned to Eye in the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM HD1 Raleigh. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to WKNC's Public Affairs Program, I Am The Triangle. I Am The Triangle is your source for local news, reviews, and interviews. My name is Nick Pinto, and I'm, and today I'm joined by Nate Baker, a candidate for Durham City Council. He's joining me at the station today to discuss Durham, his campaign, and his vision for the city. Thank you for being here, Nate. Thank you, Thank you for having me, Nick. So yeah, we can just jump right in. So just to start off, would you mind telling us a bit about your background and your political experience up to now, if any? Yeah, sure. Um, so again, Nate Baker. I'm a, a candidate for the Durham City Council at-large race this year. Um, I was born and raised in Durham. I went through the Durham public school system, K through 12. Um, so really have deep roots in Durham. And um, I'm an urban planner. I have over a decade of experience uh, helping cities and counties across North Carolina develop long-range community plans, develop urban policy, develop their regulations. Um, I've worked in Wake County, for example, Cary, um, worked in Kannapolis, North Carolina, Greenville, many other places across the state, as well as places in Virginia, South Carolina, and elsewhere. Um, and I've also served on the Durham Planning Commission. I'm the senior most member of the 14-member Durham Planning Commission, which is one of the largest planning commissions, I think, in, in the state. Um, and on the Durham Planning Commission, I have worked to um, fight against gentrification and fight against displacement, um, as well as uh, a lot of the sprawl, car-centric sprawl that we've been seeing, particularly in Southeast Durham, but really on all of the edges of our city. Um, and then we've also gotten some good things done. So working with um, neighborhoods like the Bragtown community, working with uh, the Walltown community to push back against inequitable development and try and um, use a different framework for more equitable types of development. Um, so, for example, uh, there was um, several years ago a proposal for 650 housing units in, in the Bragtown neighborhood. The neighborhood organized to push back, and I worked with them to, to do that effectively. Um, basically, um, chased the developer out of town and ended up getting more residential units and 30% uh, of those dedicated for affordable housing. So, you know, working together with the community and trying to provide information and help the community navigate the complex process of zoning and development to um, advance a more equitable city. Great. So um, broadly, what would you say your vision is for the city of Durham? The, the hope for, for the future of Durham is a city where people feel like they have a say over their own community um, and a city that's more walkable and sustainable and where people are not being pushed out and kind of feel like they are under threat constantly. Um, so right now, only 4% of our residents in Durham are actually able to get to work without a private vehicle. Um, and really, you know, you can talk to anyone and just... I sort of asked them, you know, are you are you tired of being stuck in your car all the time? 
And I have yet to come across someone who, who doesn't say yes to that. Um, people want freedom of how they can get around. And that is inherently tied to our transportation, the infrastructure design, our transit system, and importantly, the land uses and the arrangement of buildings and civic spaces and our neighborhoods. Um, and so it's important that we uh, use the levers of power that we have at the local level in order to create a city where people really truly do feel like they can navigate the city. Um, what is a working class uh, urban design look like is one of the questions. Um, and I think that's an important question and one that you need to ask people who, who live there. Um, and I think it's one where people are able to get around easily and access childcare uh, nearby to near to their home, um, access civic spaces and public spaces, um, walk to playgrounds, uh, get to their jobs easily, um, and and that doesn't uh, push out and threaten uh, people's livelihoods and people's ability to simply live their lives in their own city and in their own community. Great. So uh, how would you say that your vision kind of differs from the current policies of the city council? So we have grown um, by 10% in just the past five years. It's the greatest amount of growth and the greatest amount of change that our city has ever experienced. The way that we are growing is also being conducted in the most unsustainable way possible, the most inequitable way possible. So um, we have a, a remarkable power at the local level. Um, we often talk about how little power local governments have, particularly in the state of North Carolina, particularly in a country that is defined by neoliberalism. Um, but we still have this power uh, to regulate the way that we build the DNA. So we don't, the, the local government doesn't build the city. We don't own the means of producing our city. That belongs to the private sector by and large. And within the private sector, the largest chunk there is some of the largest corporate home builders in the country uh, with investors that are some of the largest institutional investors in the world, Vanguard, BlackRock. These are the people who are building our city in Durham and, and right here in Raleigh as well. Um, but we have the means of shaping our city through the DNA. We get to tell them how they're going to build the city. Um, and so that's, that's a very important thing. So what are we doing now? Right now we are using our DNA to paint all new development outside of our city that's being annexed into our city with exclusionary HOAs, uh, dividing uh, future residents uh, with single-family homes over here, townhomes over there, multifamily over here, and creating very long distances to be able to get to the daily needs that people, that people need to access uh, uh, on a regular basis. And um, so essentially, all of the 10 square miles that we have approved for annexations, approved for rezonings um, into our city over the past five years, a massive transformation of our, of our community um, is entirely 100% automobile uh, oriented. And once you build something uh, incorrectly the first time, it makes it extremely difficult to change um, uh, afterwards. So. That is a huge part of the, the vision um, uh, for how we can change the way that we're, that, that we're growing. Um, and, you know, there, there are other ways as well. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and just to give some statistics for our listeners, Durham's population has nearly doubled since 2000, and downtown has become 51% more white in the past 20 years. And uh, high-income white professionals have increasingly moved into majority black, Hispanic, and low-income neighborhoods. And gentrification is a top issue for many Durham residents, especially the people you would consider your constituents. 
So how do you pl plan to address that issue? Gentrification is inherently tied to uh, capitalism and the, the trends of, that, that capitalists have and, um, and real estate investments and speculation. We do not have the power to solve the issue of gentrification and displacement at the local level. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of tools to sharp to dull the sharp edges of gentrification and displacement. So you're right, we're we're losing over a thousand residents every single year. People being pushed out um, to the county, people being pushed out to uh, neighboring counties, um, and either upending their lives and having to figure out what they're going to do, um, or uh, commuting in and uh, sort of swapping housing costs with transportation costs. Um, there are uh, different tools and levers that we do have at the local level, um, but we need to sit down and think proactively and intentionally and bring all the smart people together and engage with residents to see what they want. Uh, these need to be tailored solutions. We need to look neighborhood by neighborhood, uh, and we need to develop appropriate regulations um, and uh, laws and programs in order to ensure that we're keeping people in place. So let me give you one example of something that, that we can do. So we have, uh, we have a 20-unit apartment building right in downtown. Um, it's not in great shape. However, uh, the rents that we see in that apartment building are going for $650, $700 a month for a one- or two-bedroom uh, unit. There are families that live there. Uh, what we have is a developer that's coming in to tear down 20-unit apartment building that's affordable to, to residents who, who live in a very walkable area to replace it with seven luxury townhomes. Um, and we're talking about townhomes that are going to go for $800,000 plus. We have the power to say, you can't do that. You, you cannot replace, you cannot tear this down and replace it uh, with, with seven uh, townhomes. You can only keep a, uh, an apartment building. Now, we do have limitations on whether we can stop uh, a developer from tearing down a building. There are a lot of limitations on that. However, we can at least remove the incentive, the economic and financial incentive to, for them to do that. Um, so I think that that would uh, address a significant chunk of our, of our housing product in, in Durham. Um, and then there are, other, um, there are other regulations related to maintenance of buildings that I think that we need to more strongly enact in order to ensure that we are uh, keeping folks in high-quality housing. Um, and we need to use the carrot and the stick. Um, and while rent control is illegal in the state of North Carolina, that law was written by Democrats in 1987, passed by Democrats and Republicans together with only a few dissenting votes. Um, we, we do have the power to own property. We do have the power to uh, work with uh, work with developers through the carrot and, and stick model to um, have them voluntarily adopt uh, rent control on their own properties. So I think that these are all tools that we need to use. It's going to take a comprehensive approach, but we need to sit down and develop an actual comprehensive housing plan in order to put all those pieces together. Great. Um, and just as, as a follow-up to that, an influx of high-income residents m might mean increased tax revenue for the city. So how do you balance kind of the goal of preventing gentrification with the pressure that you'll face to increase tax revenue to better fund city services. Yeah, absolutely. And this is often the justification that we do use for inhumane practices of pushing people out, right, is, is that we will uh, increase tax revenue and serve residents. Um, the question is, who, which residents? And 
when we are pushing out residents, who are we then serving and prioritizing? You're right that structurally, the, the system is designed to benefit the wealthy. Um, and that's something that we simply need to push back on. Um, I also would, would argue that, that a lot of the development, particularly that development on the outskirts of our city, we often look at the tax revenue, um, but we don't look at the other side of the ledger enough. So we're not looking at the way that we're building our city in terms of the tax expenditures, so the, the financial expenditures. Is there a balance? Um, I would argue that, that a lot of sprawl, there's imbalance. We are simply spreading out infrastructure and services among fewer people. Uh, when we're building these low-density suburbs um, and cul-de-sacs and um, single-family developments, and that we need to uh, spend a lot more time thinking about how we can do that in a much more sustainable way. So I, I think that right now the model that we're using um, is both inequitable because we're pushing residents out and there is fiscal imbalance. Awesome. And uh, you already kind of got at this, but before the pandemic, Durham County had one of the highest rates of evictions of any county in North Carolina. Um, but as you mentioned, the ability of city, of city governments to implement rent, rent control and eviction moratoriums is heavily restricted in North Carolina. So how would you directly try to reduce evictions on city council and how would you support, for example, tenants unions? That's a great question. And, and we did talk a little bit about this, so I won't repeat everything. Um, but you're absolutely right that the tenant, a tenant union is absolutely necessary. Um, we can't get enough things done in local government if we don't have the people pushing us constantly um, and people who are well-informed in a sophisticated apparatus outside of local government that's operating um, to push for working class people. Um, we need a tenants union. We need something like Kansas City Tenants Union, Los Angeles Tenants Union, and, and several others that have shown, uh, that have flexed <laughs> around the country and shown that collectively uh, they can push politicians to advance better policy. Look, the real estate industry is incredibly powerful in ways that are difficult for us to even see on a daily basis. They operate um, on many different fronts, uh, whether it's lobbying, whether it's donations, whether it's simply building connections. Um, we don't have something strong on the other side, on the working class side, not just on the capitalist side, but on the working class side. Um, to push for the kinds of changes, regulatory policy changes that, that we need. So, um, you know, we have the Triangle Tenant Union, which has just, uh, just started sort of a spinoff of the Triangle DSA. We need something at the Triangle level that's really important at the metropolitan level because that's where really where real estate operates. Um, but we also need more tailored solutions at each of the municipal levels. So um, we once had the Bull City Tenants uh, United, um, they generated a lot of energy. They did a lot of good organizing, um, but they ended up um, sort of disbanding. We need to build something back like that, and, and you all need something like that in Raleigh as well. Great. Um, and just kind of moving more directly to your campaign itself, uh, turnout for municipal primary elections is normally under 15% in Durham. So how can city, count, city council become more accountable to Durham residents outside of just election years? Yeah, and... That's a that's a great question. And um, of course, this is an election where we only vote re residents of Durham and voters of Durham only vote for city council members, only vote for people who are running for city council. So they're not going in and uh, voting for the president. And then they look at the bottom on the back sheet, back side of the sheet and um, are trying to figure out who these folks are. So there's some good and some bad of that. Um, voter turnout is pretty low, but also you have people who are 
perhaps a little bit more involved in local government and a little bit more informed. Um, voter turnout of less than 15% is pretty dismal. Um, you know, one of the one of the problems is sort of this feedback loop where during the campaign, folks who are running for office are going out and looking at who is voting. They're going to the neighborhoods with high voter turnout because you're trying to get those votes. Um, and the reality is these are fairly small budget races. So you don't have uh, a giant electoral apparatus that is going and trying to generate make sure that non-voters are voting that is something that we that we desperately need um in in durham but that's just not necessarily happening so we have extremely low voter turnout among particular demographics among particular geographies in our city um and this is this feedback loop um that's 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 a big problem um i think one of the opportunities is with our wards right now durham's um ward system is that the uh, that the politician just has to live in the ward and it's not elected by people who live in the ward. That is also at large. So when you're looking at every single seat on city council that is voted on at large, every single election you have the same politicians that are going out to the high uh, voter uh, turnout areas, and we continue with this positive feedback loop of missing and not providing um, the uh, direction that that some of these communities that have low voter turnout would would like to see. Yeah, so that that's actually my follow-up question about how does like the fact that turnout is especially low in working class and especially majority black neighborhoods, how does that affect like your campaign or canvas strategy at all? Yeah, and particularly low in Latino communities um, especially. So we are trying to engage with low voter turnout areas. Um, the reality is we do need to engage with the high voter turnout areas if we if we want to win. So we're doing that. Um, we actually develop have developed a plan for going out and and knocking knocking doors in in some of those areas. And our team put together some metrics to figure out where those will be. Um, we have also decided that we want to go and knock on doors in areas with very low voter turnout, which is not which is not necessarily the best winning strategy, but it's one that we feel is right. Um, and it's one that we, that we care about because this is a campaign that is, is based in the working class. Uh, we want to build that coalition between tenants, workers, and neighbors. And it's important to us. And we, uh, we also believe that if we work hard enough, if we knock on off doors, it can be a winning strategy as well and maybe one that's more sustainable into the future. Great. And um, so moving on to kind of student issues in Durham, so some listeners might be students or alumni of universities in Durham, and uh, many students struggle to cope with the increasing cost of living in the city, but also there's concerns about, especially Duke students, uh, kind of being the cause of gentrification in surrounding areas around the university. So how do you kind of balance those, those considerations? Yeah, I think there needs to be significant work with the universities, um, both Duke University and North Carolina Central. Uh, you know, we need to ha have a collaborative approach to those things, but... Um, one thing that our campaign in particular is, is pushing is for direct payments from Duke University to the city of Durham. Um, this is something that New Haven accomplished with, with Yale, and, and they're receiving, I, I believe, something between 10 and $20 million a year. Um, the university, of course, doesn't, doesn't pay property taxes. It's one of the largest uh, employers in our city, and we believe that, um, that it's, it's fair that, that Duke provide these payments. And, um, of course, we would we would be able to use that money as needed, but it could be used toward housing or, or other 
other types of um, infrastructure and services. Um, and then, of course, uh, Duke University, you know, it's doing its own planning, and I think the city should have a little bit of say and some coordination in, in the kinds of planning that's happening on uh, Duke University and on North Carolina Central. Make sure that um, residents are, are, you know, uh, students are, are housed um, either on campus or that there's appropriate allocation off campus for students. Great. And um, I'm sure you saw the news that the uh, Duke Graduate Students Union just won yes. their, their unionization election. So how can city government kind of support local unions, especially like grad student unions? Yeah, labor is such an important issue. We're a right-to-work state. Um, we don't have any power over a minimum wage at the local level either. Um, but but we do we do need to push uh, for for uh, labor power. Um, we do need to support. We we need to use the bully pulpit of of city council to to push for um, stronger labor practices to push for unions. Um, and I think that there are some good models out there that can empower. Uh, labor in in other ways as well. So thinking about sort of the Preston model and the Cleveland model, um, using institutions uh, across the city, whether it's uh, Duke, North Carolina Central, Durham Tech, um, the cities itself, the the county, um, in order to advance more uh, owner ownership of the means of production by by labor. So uh, worker ownership models. Um, I think that we can build a system across our city that that uh, emphasizes that. Um, and also thinking about how the city contracts, who are we gonna contract with? So there are some very direct and indirect ways that the city council can uh, empower uh, labor. But you would say that those changes basically have to come to the state and federal level in terms of like more kind of broad ranging protections and support for unions. Yeah, it's it's another one of those things where how do you advance uh, a progressive or or a leftist policy approach in a city in the state of North Carolina under a neoliberal paradigm? Um, we can neither we can we cannot solve the problem, but we can definitely do more than we're currently doing. We can always do more. Great. And uh, can you tell us about kind of what endorsements you've received and which endorsements you've sought out? Yeah. So um, I've worked. Uh, pretty closely with a, a lot of uh, different communities uh, across Durham, and so have have deep roots in the community and have a lot of support among community members. We have received some major endorsements. So um, there are important political action committees in Durham. Um, two of the larger political action committees are the People's Alliance and the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People. Uh, we received the endorsement of the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People. Um, we also received uh, the endorsement of the Sunrise Movement, uh, Durham chapter, and then we uh, recently received the endorsement of the Triangle, North Carolina Triangle Democratic Socialists of America. And why would you say that, like, for each of those groups, why did they endorse you and not other candidates? Uh, the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People um, is, uh, is a very diverse group, I would say, and... Um, you know, I think what happened uh, with the Durham Committee was um, simply engaging with them, speaking with them. Um, and a lot of the work that we've been doing over the past five years has been in um, historically black neighborhoods. So Bragtown um, is, consists of multiple neighborhoods, several of which are historically black, um, and Walltown as well. Uh, we've done work in, in Haytai and Fayette, Fayette Place, and also just the work um, fighting back against gentrification, displacement. I think that, that all of that work um, sort of positioned us in a place where we, we were in consideration by the Durham Committee 
who ended up giving us that endorsement. Um, the Sunrise Movement is, is a group that we work closely with. We actually have our own proposal for a Green New Deal for Durham. Um, I want to go bigger than that. I want us to develop a triangle-wide climate action plan that coordinates with all of the municipalities and counties across uh, the triangle. I want Durham to, to lead on that. Um, and I want us to hold summits, high-profile summits, where we bring together all of our local governments um, to look at who is achieving metrics, how we can do better, and how we can collaborate to make sure that we're putting ourselves on a path to, to carbon neutrality. Uh, and then finally, democratic socialists, um, you know, our, our campaign is, is inherently on the left. Um, we are pushing for um, the right to the city to empower work, the working class people of our city um, across, uh, the, across racial lines. And so, um, you know, we want to work closely with democratic socialists, especially um, if we are able to win, to advance policies that improve the lives of working class people, that are grounded by, by working class people, that empower working class people, um, and push back against the corporate interests that have uh, had so much control in our city for far too long. Great. And uh, it leads into my next question, which is about, uh, this is more specifically about your relationship with the Triangle DSA. So um, I'll just read a bit from DSA's platform. DSA's platform states, quote, we are socialists because we share a vision of a humane social order based on popular control of resources and production, economic planning, equitable distribution, feminism, racial equality, and non-oppressive relationships, end quote. So would you describe yourself as a socialist? And how does like your conception of socialism align with that of DSA? I would. I would and, and sometimes, um, sometimes uh, looking at the local level and looking within the state of North Carolina and within the United States, um, it, can, it can feel so far away, that kind of future um, where people really truly are empowered, um, really do have dignified work, um, really do have stable housing and a right to housing and a right to health care. Um, it can feel so far away. It can feel like sometimes we're comparing whether you and I, which one of, which one of us is more likely to hit our head on, head on the moon. Um, but, there is, but there are things that we can do at the local level, and I think one of these opportunities really is about real estate capital and our, our ability to um, leverage that kind, of, that kind of work and that kind of development um, in order to advance the interests of, of the working class. So um, yes, I would describe myself as, as a socialist, and I think um, at the local level, what it comes down to is simply people over profit. Great, and um, one part of that selection from the uh, platform that I just read that really stuck out to me was uh, the bit about economic planning. Um, so. This is maybe kind of far off, kind of abstracted topic, but would you ultimately support the replacement of capitalism and markets with a system of economic planning, or is that not part of your conception of socialism? I would consider that part of part of socialism. Uh, for example, you know, I think I think labor should have uh, ownership over the means over the means of production. Um, I w I want a future city one day um, where we own the means of producing our own city. Don't don't just have the the ability to shape it through the DNA, through the zoning regulations that we have, but that we actually have the power to build the city that we that we want, um, the city that we want to imagine, um, and I think that's an important part of it. Um, I also think that we do need to use the levers that we have now. Um, I do think that we can be strategic, and um, I think this is why it's not just uh, socialists that are supporting us. It's it's really folks across the political spectrum because it really is about empowering human beings and people and putting them first over in, uh, corporate interests. Great. 
And um, another part of the DSA platform calls for reparations for black and indigenous people. Would you support reparations legislation locally? Yeah. And uh, this is maybe a more fun question. If you could just, if there was no uh, legal limits, we'll say, if you just have like one wish list policy that you could implement on city council, what would that be? Given the limitations that we have, no, or no, no. Like, like for, like for example, if there's no restrictions on on rent control or eviction moratoriums or building public housing, whatever. Um, wow, that is a fun one. Um, so, it, the largest landowner in the country of Austria is the city of Vienna, and I would love for the people of Durham to own the majority of the housing that is in Durham. And um. Yeah, just to circle back about one more point about DSA. So you mentioned that you were kind of looking for like a relationship, like an ongoing relationship with DSA after your election. Can you just like tell our audience what maybe that would look like? Yeah, I think that's a that's a two way road, and it, it's the same thing with um, all of the large groups of of Durham, with the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People, um, with the the uh, Sunrise Movement, is continue to in, to engage as as we move forward. Um, one thing I want to do is form a kitchen cabinet that includes a diverse array of people from across our city who I'm regularly meeting with and talking to. And so um, the DSA would, would certainly have a, a representative on, um, on the kitchen cabinet. I also think it's a two-way road. You know, uh, the DSA organizes around a lot of working class issues. Similarly, um, a lot of the, the work that I have done and, and built deep roots in Durham I want DSA to be a part of that work. So I want to build those kinds of connections. And I've already spoken with them and they have shown and demonstrated that they are also interested in engaging in ways that they haven't before. Um, So I think that this is an opportunity to do some movement building and to do some fun and great things in Durham to advance some good policy, but also build movement and momentum around broader, higher level issues. Great. And uh, so on that note, I guess uh, if people are interested, how can they kind of get involved in your campaign? Yeah, so um, people can go to my website, uh, natefordurham.com. We have volunteer opportunities. We're going to be doing a lot of canvassing here in the next um, couple of months. Um, People can contribute. um, And importantly, people who live in Durham can talk to their friends and to their family and make sure that they get uh, registered to vote. You need an identification this year. Uh, photo ID, and um, and that you get to the polls and, and vote in the primary and then vote in the general election. Awesome. Um, all right. You just heard Eye in the Triangle in our interview with Nate Baker. Uh, we discussed Durham politics, uh, his endorsements, his kind of plan for the city, and also how we can all get involved if we're so interested. So thank you, Nate, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Nick. Next up on this week's episode of Eye in the Triangle is a quick Triangle News Roundup, uh, including updates on Shaw University's mosque and some information on ongoing deforestation in Wake County. And so, yeah, to start us off, uh, Shaw University announced last month that Masjid King Khalid Mosque on campus will be reopened to the public after an extended pause during the pandemic. And just for some background information, the on-campus mosque was built in 1983 with a over $1 million donation from the late King Khalid of Saudi Arabia, making it one of the earliest places of worship for Raleigh's Muslim community. And the campus chapel was also closed due to the pandemic, 
but it was reopened for public services in 2022. And so members of the Shah community, including Muslim students and the governing board of the mosque, considered the reopening of the chapel, but the continued closure of the mosque to be an act of discrimination on the part of the university administration. And this controversy coincides with Shaw University's rezoning request to Raleigh City Council that would permit the redevelopment of much of the university's nearly 30-acre campus. And while university leaders have stressed that leasing portions of Shaw's properties to private developers would provide much-needed revenue for the university, some alumni and members of the Muslim community expressed concerns about the impact of redevelopment on the mosque and other historically significant buildings on campus, such as SD Hall. In June, uh, Raleigh City Council decided in a split 5-3 vote to approve the rezoning request with stipulations added mandating that, among other things, uh, one of the first three buildings built in this redevelopment be student housing and the requirement that Shaw continue to meet with community members throughout the planning process, at least quarterly. In, in addition, beginning August 1st, the mosque and Shaw University entered into a binding, uh, quote, memorandum of understanding, unquote, which uh, ensures that the mosque can remain open and remain in operation until at least 2026. And there are plans for future negotiations uh, between the university and the mosque to agree to a permanent or at least longer term solution to this ongoing dispute. Moving on, our second story is about shrinking forest cover in Wake County. Reporting earlier this month by Lisa Sorg of NC Newsline indicates that Wake County has lost over 11,000 acres of trees just since 2010. And almost unbelievably, that's the equivalent of 2,700 Walmart stores. I mean, that's a statistic that just completely blows my mind. And Wake County released a land cover analysis and tree canopy assessment recently, which contains a lot of very interesting data on the state and health of Wake County's tree cover and land use. And so I've picked out just a couple of interesting tidbits to share with y'all. And so for one, over 50% of the county's land area is covered in tree canopy, while only 15% is covered in impervious services, which includes buildings, roads, uh, and that sort of thing, basically built up areas. And additionally, two-thirds of trees in Wake County are deciduous, while about one-third are coniferous, which, I mean, basically just means pine trees, right, in Wake County, which I'm sure isn't uh, too surprising for our listeners. And importantly, overall, Wake County has lost 3% of its tree cover since 2010. And it's worth noting that underserved and marginalized communities, especially neighborhoods around, for example, New Bern Avenue, have significantly less tree cover than the rest of Wake County to begin with. And it's important to note that the 3% overall decline in tree cover is bad in itself, but also that decline has not been uniform across Wake County. Specifically, areas north and northeast of downtown Raleigh have seen some of the most dramatic declines in tree cover, with declines of 10% or more in some areas immediately north of downtown, sort of in the uh, St. Augustine University area. And, And additionally, environmentally sensitive areas, such as around Lake Johnson, on the far western side of Wake County have seen very dramatic declines in tree cover of over 15% in some cases, depending on the particular particular area around Lake Johnson. But, you know, on a more positive note, 
a lot of this report is focused on identifying areas where planting trees could have the greatest impact and benefit marginalized communities the most. And so the, the assessment identified areas around NC State's campus and in Southeast Raleigh as high priorities for tree planting. And optimistically, maybe this assessment will help local governments preserve you know, remaining tree cover and use their limited financial resources more effectively in making sure every neighborhood has access to green spaces and shade. Because as noted earlier, in some neighborhoods uh, in Wake County, that's a serious issue of a lack of tree cover, a lack of shade for bus stops, especially in areas which are already suffering from a lack of investment and from a history of, of neglect by local governments. Thank you for listening to this episode of Eye on the Triangle, the public affairs program of WKNC 88.1 FM HD1 Raleigh. To listen to past episodes of Eye on the Triangle or replay this one, please visit wknc.org forward slash podcasts. The music for this episode is titled Noah Stark by Krakatoa and it was made available through a Creative Commons license. You can check wknc.org forward slash schedule to catch the next episode of Eye on the Triangle Live. Until then, this has been Nick Pinto with WKNC 88.1.